we are going to unite and level up. I will lead this great party into a new era. You are fake news. Hi guys and welcome to Politics Mad, the podcast where we discuss all the international and domestic politics except about coronavirus. I'm Ollie. And I'm Rol. This week on the domestic side of things, we're going to look at the committee chaos surrounding the UK and the release of the upcoming Russia report. This of course refers to the appointment of Julian Lewis at the chair of the Intelligence Committee in Parliament. And we're also going to look at the UK's increasingly hard line on China as well. Is it all just rhetoric or is there actual substance behind the comments so far? And on the international perspective, we're going to be staying on the subject of China and looking at how its international relations have gotten into a lot of tension in the last few weeks. And then we'll move on to the EU, who are currently discussing the best ways to bail themselves out of the upcoming economic crisis. So let's kick things off with the UK then. And... As I was saying just previously, um, there's been a bit of more scandal because Tory MP Julian Lewis has lost the Conservative whip in the UK Parliament. Ollie, tell us why. Yeah, so Julian Lewis, who is the former chair of the Defence Select Committee, came into a bit of controversy this week after he was elected chair of the Security Committee. Now, on, on basis, that seems fine. He's a Tory MP. They were electing the chair for that committee. But he wasn't the PM's preferred choice. In this case, Chris Grayling, the former Transport Secretary, was Boris Johnson's choice to chair the committee. Now, after a bit of collusion with Labour and the SNP, Julian Lewis decided that he had a good shot at being elected for the committee, so he ran instead and they voted him in as chair. Now, that really annoyed the Tory party because they'd obviously asked him, "We want can we count on your vote here? We want Grayling in this position. And he said, no, I think it should be independently chosen. I don't think the government should decide who selects the chair of a select committee. And now they've withdrawn the whip from him. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's obviously that's the, the key point of the story, really. I think that the Tories, in response to Julian Lewis's perceived or real um, betrayal, have withdrawn the whip from which is a very serious thing people forget that i mean withdrawing the whip from someone in parliament means that if there were election tomorrow julian lewis wouldn't be the conservatives candidate given he's an mp for quite a safe seat he would effectively lose his job so that's quite a serious move does it stink of hubris by the tory party or do they genuinely think that they can cajole MPs who dissent into line like this. Well, we saw that with the Brexit vote, where the whip was removed from everyone who didn't vote for it when Boris Johnson first came into power. And obviously those MPs, some of whom had the whip returned, but the ones who didn't, had to run as independents, and obviously they all lost their seats. So this Conservative Party isn't afraid to withdraw the whip to try and enact its own line. But you can see from Julian Lewis's perspective, he said he received a text on the day of the vote trying to ask if he would confirm his vote for Grayling. And he said he took issue with this because under law, the government should not be the one who decides who chairs a select committee. It should be independently chosen. And he said that was one of the main reasons for his decision. But the government came back and said, oh no, you've colluded with Labour and the SNP for your own personal gain. And for that reason, we're withdrawing the whip. Yeah, it does seem like his uh, concern over the government's action in this was just kind of largely brushed under the carpet. I mean, the, the government clearly did want Chris Grayling to be as head of the committee. That's not in contention. 
what is in contention is is that whether you know Julian Lewis acted um, against the Tory party's own rules by colluding with the SNP and Labour MPs to become the chair of this committee. Obviously, after the fact that he's been he's lost the whip of the Conservative Party, this is all important in relation to the upcoming Russia report. And this was obviously the report that looked at the alleged Russian interference in UK elections. This has gone on for, I think the, the report was started something like 10 months ago. It's a very, very long time for a report to come out, um, which some have suggested because the government doesn't really want it to come out. With Julian Lewis at the head of this committee, which releases the report, and him now having lost the Conservative web, it's going to come out sooner rather than later, you would think. Yeah, and they've said that now. They've said they're going to try and get the report out as soon as possible. And interestingly enough, shortly after that, the UK government announced that the Russians had actually leaked the documents alluding to the US trade talks that were released during the 2019 general election. And you may remember that was used by Labour, when Jeremy Corbyn went into debate saying, oh, look, these documents prove that the NHS is on the table in US trade talks. And the government are now claiming that that report was released by Russian hackers. So this is Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, announcing about that Russian hacking earlier in the week. We believe, we know with reasonable confidence, that Russian actors were involved in trying to interfere with the 2019 election, uh, principally through trying to spread, amplify online uh, illegally obtained leaked documents relating to the UK-US free trade negotiations. There's a criminal investigation ongoing, so I can't say too much more than that. It is important to wait on the specific uh, attribution, but we will reserve our right to take appropriate measures when we have the conclusion of that investigation. Now, what's interesting about that is some have claimed it's coincidental timing. So the SNP in particular have said this because obviously they've announced this with the knowing that this Russian report will come out very soon. And some have questioned whether or not they're trying to distract from that or they're trying to preempt it. Yeah, and obviously in the, in the next week or so, it's going to be really interesting to pour through what this report actually says. So it's, it's really a matter of waiting and seeing. Now, the Labour Party has obviously been questioned on this. And the current Shadow Foreign Secretary Lisa Nandy has already said that the Labour Party has been wrong on Russia in recent years, especially in, in regard to the Salisbury poisoning attack. And... When asked about the hacked documents in the election, she basically said, oh, yeah, we wouldn't have used them had we known where they'd come from. And Akir Starmer wouldn't have done it either. Yeah, and it's it's definitely part of that, along with Keir Starmer's comments on, on China, which we'll come into in a second. Um, a, a definite change in the kind of, maybe, perhaps not so much of the substance, but at least the tone and the outward perception of Labour's foreign policy. Uh, we know that during the Corbyn years, foreign policy was such a massive um, area of disagreement between the main two parties and one where, uh, for the most of the populace, anyway, for most of the electorate, Labour's position on a host of historical and present foreign policy issues really didn't endear them to the public. So that is, again, maybe another sign, as we've talked in previous weeks about, about Keir's stamping his authority on the party. There is to be no more foreign policy gaffes we're going to set out a, a normal centrist platform on these issues to not alienate that many people. Yeah and that was always a bit of an issue under Corbyn you could argue because 
going back to say something like Hillary Benn's speech uh, arguing for bombing Syria, where the, the shadow foreign secretary got up and argued against the party leader's own line. And then you could argue with the Salisbury poisoning attack, many people said that Labour weren't equivocal enough and they wavered too much, which is basically what Lisa Nandy said in her interview yesterday. Yes, definitely a change of direction there. Last question on this on this issue. The Conservative Party are clearly playing another gamble, albeit a less intense gamble than the gamble they played in the run-up to the 19, 2019 election by um, re removing a whip for all of the dissenting MPs on Brexit. Do you think they'll get away with this, Ollie? Do you think that this won't mushroom and balloon into wider questions on whether the government is overstepping its authority on um, interfering with the checks and balance system in Parliament, i.e. the committee systems? Or do you think they'll get away with it like they did with the 21 MPs expelled over going against the whip on Brexit, which effectively led to most of them losing their seats and a few of them being readmitted into the Tory party on the Tory party's terms? Well, there hasn't been too much noise from Tory MPs arguing against it, so it doesn't look like it doesn't look that way now. But no one's really come out and said, "Oh, this is a disgrace." Or there seems to be quite a lot of loyalty for Tory MPs and their government. Interesting, and we'll definitely touch back on that in the next few weeks to see how that story develops. Moving on now to China and the UK has, I mean, I've I've been actually quite taken aback by what's been happening over the last five days because at least in, in terms of the rhetoric coming out from the UK on China, it's been astonishingly blunt, hasn't it? Yeah, very, uh, especially in the last week. There's been so much stuff regarding China and so many different topics as well. But the thing that's come to prominence more so re recently has been the issue of Uyghur Muslims in Western China. Now, um, Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, has accused China of human rights abuses in regard to these Uyghur Muslims who are kept in what China calls re-education camps. Now, the Chinese ambassador has thoroughly denied they are concentration camps, but we've seen footage from Xinjiang this week of Uyghur Muslims being blindfolded and put onto trains, and there are even reports of forced sterilization among them. So um, Andrew Ma had uh, the Chinese ambassador on his show on Sunday, and uh, this is what he said. The uh, uh, so-called uh, uh, Western intelligence keeping up make this a false acquisition against China. They said one million Uyghur yes. has been uh, persecuted. You know how, how big, how, how many population Xinjiang has? It's just about 40 years ago, it's a four, five million. Now it's 11 million people. And people say, you know, we impose, uh, we have a, a ethnic cleansing. But the population has doubled in the 40 years. So there's no so-called restriction of the population. There's so, no so-called false uh, uh, abortion and so on. Yeah, and it was it was an absolutely cracking interview. I, I suggest that everyone um, actually watches the interview in full on the BBC's website because it was a really eye-opening and one of probably Andrew Marr's best interviews I've ever seen. This is all quite new. I mean, I remember growing up in a time um, in the early coalition years when Britain was bending over backwards to be in China's good books and secure a lot of inward investment from China and basically heralding the, I think the phrase was the golden age of UK-Sino relations. And five or six years later in the present day, how things have changed. I mean, it's now widely accepted on both sides of the political aisle that China needs to reform and needs to change and we can't, it can't be business as normal 
with China because they're just not listening on these key issues. Quite a change, isn't it, Ollie? Yeah, and I suppose at the moment we've got these three major issues as well, which perhaps has made it easier for the UK government to call them out on other areas. So firstly, we have Hong Kong, which obviously the UK government is treaty bound to act on anyway. Secondly, we have this issue of 5G and Huawei, which obviously Chinese law permits them to use any Chinese company to uh, technically spy on any country, which is partly why they take issue with it. And then we have this issue of Uyghur Muslims, which are an example of human rights abuses. So three major issues of China at the moment, which many feel just can't be ignored. And many communities in Britain, I think, also uh, feel that the UK should be taking a stance on these things. And I think you've seen some global consensus of that as well. And um, one example of that is with Hong Kong. So we're about to change our extradition laws, ending Hong Kong extradition. So that's the process of being able to um, extradite prisoners committed an offence in Hong Kong or vice versa in Britain. Now, Canada and Australia have already ended extradition to Hong Kong. And the Labour Party have actually said the government should go even further than this and bring in sanctions for Chinese officials. So there's certainly a lot of action going on against China from a global perspective right now as well. We can also see an example of that with the social media site TikTok. So due to these diplomatic relations this week, it's been widely reported that plans to put a TikTok headquarters in the UK have been put on hold due to the ongoing tensions because apparently there have been negotiations with the government for them for there to be one. Now TikTok have said they've not abandoned their plans and this could still happen but it certainly looks like these diplomatic relations are having wider implications now for Chinese businesses. Yeah that's definitely going to be the question in the next 5, 10 and 15 years. To what level do we allow China to economically invest within the UK because the calculus has totally changed. As I said previously, in the early 10, 2010s, all of the buzzword was about Chinese investment coming to the UK. We want Chinese investment in our automotive industry, in our nuclear power industry, in other forms of infrastructure, because they can just offer so much cash on such good terms. And obviously that's radically changed. But the, the, the effect of that is that China is already involved in, our, in the British economy substantially in many various sectors. Obviously, we're hearing a lot about um, how they're involved in telecommunications. But as I said, they're involved in infrastructure. They're involved in procurement. They're involved in a whole host of things. And the question after this will be, how much do we scale that um, economic relationship back further? And how much damage will bits of the economic relationship that we do want to preserve, like Chinese students coming to British universities, for instance, be damaged? And with the government obviously hoping that they won't be damaged that much. Yeah, and this is obviously also in the case we're about to enter a, what will probably be a global recession. So these decisions based on economics and diplomatic concerns may overlap now in many, many ways, and that will probably cause tension from both perspectives. Definitely. And I think that moves us quite nicely onto the international section. Kind of following on from what we've been talking about in the UK, the pressure on China has been ramping up for weeks and months now. And it's an issue we've talked about specifically on a few other times on the podcast. But I feel it's, it's right to look back at it again, really, um, because of all of this um, increased anti-China sentiment. To kick things off, I, th I thought I'd play a clip of Secretary of State for, um, for the US administration, Mike Pompeo, who gave a speech kind of outlining the US's main concerns with China uh, right now. 
For a long time, foreign policy thinkers thought that the more we traded with China, the more free that nation would become and the less risk there would be to the American people. But that's not what's happening today. Today, the Chinese Communist Party is crushing freedom in Hong Kong. It's threatening a free Taiwan. It's trying to dominate world communications networks, including those right here in places like Iowa and inside China. Just to give a single example, a few weeks back, I read a report about the Chinese Communist Party forcing mass abortions and sterilization on Chinese Muslims in Western China. Yeah, it's a, it's a great speech really summing up the main sticking points over Hong Kong, the Uyghurs, uh, the involvement of Chinese state firms in tech and country security arrangements, as we've discussed previously. And these issues just aren't going to go away. Yeah, so obviously we've seen our own domestic pressure being put on China, but how successful do you think the Trump administration has been from an American perspective? I mean, this is a, a really interesting topic because I, I was thinking about this recently in the context of China has always been a threat to the West in terms of values and in terms of the fact that it will be the superpower of this century. That's never been in doubt. China's always had a horrendous record on human rights and, uh, you know, weak rule of law and weak democratic institutions. That's always been known. Um, they've all, it's also been ever known since we were in school that, you know, you would always learn that the emerging countries, India and China, are going to rule the world by the end of the century. Yet it was never really talked about in the same way um, politically, I think, until Trump came along. I think I do think Trump succeeded in creating this debate or, or certainly energising this debate. I don't think that's uh, whether it's for better or worse. He definitely energised it. And in that regard, the Trump administration has put significantly more pressure on China than previous administrations have. In fact, previous administrations went so far as to court China. And going back to that point of it's, it's not suddenly become more authoritarian. You know, I remember in 2008, uh, when Beijing hosted the Olympics, for about a year before those Olympic Games, there was large, there were large-scale Tibetan protests um, over the issue of Chinese rule in Tibet and the human rights abuses that go on there. And I remember them watching them as a kid and the world piping up in, in absolute horror about what was going on there, especially given the fact that China was about to host uh, the 20, uh, 2008 Olympics. The people who say that China has become slightly more authoritarian, I think, are somewhat missing the gun. China's always been an authoritarian state. The issue is that it's just a very powerful country now. Um, it's the world's second or indeed first biggest economy, depending on how you measure it. And it can do things without condemnation severely affecting it now, which is certainly something that it couldn't do, say, 20 years ago. Yeah, and it's interesting we talk about Trump and you know taking a hard stance on China, which, to be fair, is something he always pledged he would do in his election campaign. Um, and we've obviously also seen the fact that he started a trade war with China, which he also said he would do. But so do you, th do you think we'll see more coordinated efforts now on China from the international community? I do think you're starting to see the emergence of this. Yes, I mean, we talked about the British announcements last week. We haven't mentioned um, Australia as much, but we really should have because Australia has been hot on China's heels now for a fair few months. I mean, I lived in Australia between 2018 and 2019, and I experienced, I didn't follow politics as closely as I do here, but from what I observed, there was a significant anti-China lobby in Australia, which is only growing stronger in the two years since I left, to the extent now that, as you were saying, Scott Morrison, uh, Australia's Prime Minister, has revoked um, the extradition treaty between Australia and Hong Kong. Um, Australia has been lobbying for a national international inquiry into the causes of the COVID epidemic, much to China's um, anger. So you are seeing various countries around the world starting to put concerted pressure on China. I'm not sure if this is the workings of the Trump administration, though. I mean, the Trump administration is famously unilateral in its dealings with the world. 
they like to talk to individual countries on an individual basis rather than acting, say, as a group of 10, 20, 30 Western countries. So if in, in answer to your question, are we going to see much more coordinated efforts on China? Naturally, we are, yes, right now. But I think that will exponentially increase if someone like Biden wins the White House in 2020, because Biden isn't necessarily opposed, like most other presidents haven't, have never been, to multilateral action. And the fact of the matter is that China requires multilateral action if the West is to achieve its goals there, because it is simply so much more powerful than in 2008 or 1998 or 10 years before that. In terms of GDP by purchase power and parity, which is kind of a, a way of measuring what a country can buy with its local currency rather than exchanging it into dollars and seeing how much it's actually worth. China's economy is bigger than the US's at this present stage. Their military spending is growing exponentially and they can pack a punch in their own back garden and across the world. So yeah, I think that coordinated efforts are required for the West to achieve their objectives in China and assuming that Biden wins in 2020, we're going to see much more of that. So presumably there's been a fair bit of pushback from China. So what do you think we can expect from them in the upcoming weeks and months? I think it's it's hard. I'm a little bit more conflicted on this point. Obviously, in the last week or two, we've seen uh, relevant re Chinese officials coming out and criticising nations who have, who have brought up these issues with China. Chinese officials have said that America must make a fundamental choice about whether it can live peacefully with a modernised, strong and prosperous China or not. Obviously, we've heard the um, words of the Chinese ambassador to the UK basically saying, we want you to be our friend, but if you keep on asking these questions, you're going to have problems. Um, China has always been known of acting quite like Trump likes to act in a unilateral way against countries that bring up these issues, often severely affecting them through a use of economic and political tools. That's less effective when countries band together in multilateral action. So I think China will probably keep on trying to do what it has been doing, really, um, pick off individual nations and uh, try and restrict their action and fight its corner on the international stage and hope that no multilateral action materialises as the, as sort of like the action that's materialising right now. Okay then, so on the issue of multilateral action, let's talk about the EU. Now, obviously we're about to enter a global recession and so the EU are currently in their fourth day of discussing a coronavirus support package. So a massive economic, economic stimulus package to try and fix the EU economy. So what are the sticking points here, Rob? A few days ago when the uh, talks started, Ursula von der Leyen, um, who is the European Commission's uh, president, essentially kind of the, the president of the executive body of the European Union, uh, had this to say on her hopes for the talks. The whole world is watching us, whether Europe is able to stand up united and to overcome this corona-related crisis strongly with a convincing European budget, with next generation EU. We have the chance not only to overcome the crisis, but also to modernize our single market and our union, to bring forward the European Green Deal and the digitalization. And therefore, this day today is of utmost importance. Yeah, so as you can tell from her, she really thinks it's a pivotal moment in European history. 750 billion euros was to be offered to member states, um, 500 billion of which, and this is the crucial point, 500 billion of which will be grants, i.e. money given with no strings attached to nations that need it, whereas the other 250 billion would be loans. Now, almost as soon as this was announced by the European Commission, um, a frugal alliance of four countries, called the Frugal Four, Austria, Denmark, the Netherlands and Sweden, 
um, registered some opposition with this. Uh, they said that the idea of grants in this 750 billion figure was unacceptable. Money had to be in forms of loans and there had to be a conditions attached to these loans, i.e. it had to be a bailout similar to the ones we saw in Portugal, in Greece and in Spain during the Eurozone crisis. That set the stage for what is now going on to the longest EU summit ever because of these disagreements. So um, what are the aims of the main groups here then? Well, they've shifted. I mean, so at the start, um, kind of the head of this frugal for the uh, de facto spokesman, which is Mark Rutte, the, the prime minister of uh, the Netherlands, just didn't want any component of grants. That's now shifted. The Frugal Four have, uh, this is correct at the time of broadcast or recording, sorry, which is about four o'clock on Monday, that um, they're willing to part with about 360, 370 billion euros in grants. Um, that's short of the 500 uh, billion suggested by the European Commission, but still a significant concession. Um, the Southern European countries like Spain and Italy, which are due to receive the bulk of this money, are saying, no, we want a minimum of 400 billion in grants and there seems to be some suggestion that there will be a compromise figure announced today although we have yet to see that of 390 uh, billion there are also other concerns the frugal four wanted some of this aid to be attached to reforms that by by which i mean economic reforms much like the bailouts in the eurozone crisis were um, they also want them to be attached to some sort of rule of law uh, statement and this has raised concerns from hungary and poland which have quite nationalistic governments and have claimed that they're trying to tie political issue to what should be a solely economic matter. It seems at this stage that we're uncertain if any, if the Frugal Four get their way on these matters, but it has caused a lot of heat um, in the talks so far. Okay then, so what do you think will be the result here? I think it's, it's looking more and more likely that there will be a deal. I mean, it's been extremely acrimonious, these um, proceedings. Some of the things that have come out um, have said that, you know, the Italian Prime Minister uh, Giuseppe Conte has said that a failure to strike a deal would mean to the destruction of Europe's single market. What the One of the frugal four, the Austrian Chancellor uh, Sebastian Kurz, was lashed out um, at by the French President Emmanuel Macron. Macron was reported saying, you see, he doesn't care. He doesn't listen to the others. He has a bad attitude. It's it's It, it was very acrimonious at times. Um, however, that is starting to ease. I mean, a, a tweet by Sebastian Kurtz, the Australian uh, Austrian Chancellor, um, suggested that some sort of agreement was in the offing by this evening. Mark Rutte, the um, Dutch president, the uh, Prime Minister, has also given sort of similar sort of soundings. Okay, then. So, um, presumably, this deal is going to involve a fair amount of EU borrowing. So, what do you think of the longer term implications should this deal go through? It's going to be massive. I mean, it's, it's worth explaining once again what this entails. This entails, it now looks likely, somewhere between 350 and 400 billion euros being raised by the European Commission, i.e. by the European Commission taking on debt, which all member states of the European Commission, i.e. the EU, are um, liable for, to help the poor areas of the EU. Put simply, it's what a normal country does. Um, for instance, if you think about Britain, you know, certain areas of Britain have been affected by COVID or say 10 years ago by the financial crisis, much more than other areas in the financial crisis. Northern towns were much more affected than London, say, which recovered quite quickly. What was the government response in part? Well, it's that 
taxes are redistributed from rich areas like London to poorer areas or towns or cities in the UK. Well, that's what we're essentially seeing being muted here. You've got rich areas of the EU. So you've got the EU taking debt out as a whole, funded on the shoulders of many of the richer parts like France and Germany to go to the bits that are struggling more like Spain and Italy. This is one of the key functions that a normal state has. And although no treaty is being changed here and there is no um, official drive for integration, if this gets passed by its very nature of being, of allowing the, e, the European Commission to raise such amounts of money by itself, take on debt by itself, I think it can't be seen as anything but a massive step towards fiscal union of the bloc. So we're looking at more integration then is what you're saying. But I guess also the question is what can be, what's Britain's role in all this? Because obviously we've left the European Union now. Are we missing out here? Well, that's, I mean, it hasn't been discussed much, but yeah, it would be very interesting to see in, in a kind of hypothetical world if Britain was in the EU now, right now, what, if anything, would be happening? Because it's, def it's without doubt that the UK has been one of the most effective nations in the whole of the world, let alone Europe. Not in terms of just the impact of the coronavirus pandemic, but also in terms of economics. Um, we're forecast this year by the OECD, as we've talked about in previous episodes, to have the biggest drop in GDP of any European OECD nation. I think it's something like 10.5%. So yeah, you know, assuming that we were in the EU at this point, we would be looking at receiving some funds. However, it's, it's, it's quite likely that we would be a net contributor as we are an overall rich country, which would have meant that there would have been a strong likelihood, I think, that the UK would have vetoed this support package, much like the uh, Frugal Four are raising concerns about it now, because the Frugal Four have always been frugal, and they've always been fiscal conservatives in European decisions. They've always lobbied for less spending and less lagress in Europe, less wastage in Europe. However, they're all quite, they're quite small countries. You know, the largest of them is the Netherlands with a population of, I think, about 16 million. In these sorts of negotiations in years gone by, they always used to kind of fall into line behind Britain. Britain used to be the spokes the spokesman on these matters kind of lobbying for more free trade and less spending well now britain's gone and it's fallen to the um dutch their feet um and they can't really mount as much opposition as britain did because they're just not as big a country so yeah i think european pro-european federalists are really rubbing their hands that britain is out of these discussions because i think that yes britain probably had something to gain um, from this but in terms of money it would have lost and therefore it would have probably used a, a veto or heavily reduce that 350 to 400 billion a euro, sorry, of grants. So talking about more integration, slightly uh, hypothetical question now. Do you think uh, a federal united Europe is inevitable because of what's being discussed here? I mean, as I said, it's, it's taken a big step towards that, really. There is still opposition. Um, you know, the frugal four, it, it seems like they have been negotiated out to, for, to, to allowing some sort of grants in the in europe um, worth hundreds of billions of euros but they're still very eurosceptic countries when it comes to any sort of talk of formal unification you know and they've got their own domestic concerns to worry about in the netherlands uh mark rutter has got gert wilders to think about who is the um quite a strong dutch eurosceptic and uh nationalist as well um in sweden you've got the swedish democrats on along the same sort of vine of the route in austria you've got a very large president of the freedom party which is a far right party again quite eurosceptic and the list goes on and on so these leaders can't be seen to give too much to european federalism however i can't help but thinking personally that at the moment of this the, uh, countries always created in the moments of crisis 
whether it's some sort of revolution or some sort of social uprising, this is how institutions are created. Most of the world's institutions that we know today were created in the aftermath of the Second World War. Europe is no different in the sense that it's seen integration occur, usually spurred on by crisis. You know, there were a lot of moves to integrate more after the financial crisis. And I think you're seeing that desire really increase during this COVID crisis. Germany, which has previously been quite a stickler in terms of allowing things like, say, what we're seeing right now in, in the European Commission, raising debt to pay for uh, grants to poorer countries, they're now in line. Uh, possibly because um, Angela Merkel isn't doesn't have any more elections to fight. This is her last election and she she's retiring at, at the next one. So I think this will go down in history, assuming some sort of deal gets passed, which it looks likely that it will, as one of the big steps towards um, Eurofederalism, because the European Commission is effectively operating like the US Treasury or Britain's Treasury or the Treasury of any other nation by raising money, by borrowing, and spending that and redistributing that to poorer places, which is what all normal countries do. And up until this point, the European Commission hasn't really done. That is an interesting point to end on. So thank you so much for listening to the show, guys. Uh, give us remember, you can like us on Facebook, give us a share, uh, follow us on Twitter. We'd really appreciate it. But until then, thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back next week.